Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and I have a first-time guest in the book club today, all the way from Oz, down under. It's a big welcome to Luke Aldred. Luke, hello. Uh, hello, Eamon. How are you? Well, I'm very well, thank you. Now, obviously, uh, although you're in the mythical land of Oz, you don't have the accent. So um, we're going to ask you, as we do with all first-timers, about your um, 2000 AD origin story, your first experiences with the prog and comics. And uh, you and I share a sort of geographical location for this, don't we? We do. We, we could have crossed paths. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah, certainly. So I'm from the Midlands. Um I'm from Birmingham, a leafy suburb on the south uh, west fringes, I guess, of Birmingham, Solihull, which I believe is where you hailed from. Um, we went to similar schools. I went to Alderbrook Secondary School. I believe you went to Tudor Grange. I went to the one next door. Yes, we yep. <laughs> yes school rivalry. Yeah, there, there were a few rumbles out on the um, yeah out in the, the, the green fields. I think because we shared various uh, yeah rolling pastures and things like that. And you had the nice green uniform and we had the lovely purple one. Exactly, yes. Yep. Um, so, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so do you want to hear my origin story then? I feel, I feel starstruck that I'm in the position. I'm in the yes, seat please. Of, uh, Tell us about 2008 and the prog, yeah. Yeah, well, um, similar to a lot of people, I'm, you know, I was born in 1970, so I came in at the same sort of age. I'm not a prog wanner. Um, I was aware of it, but I think it's because I must have had older friends um, we had older friends knocking around, so certainly Battle and Action and all those uh, titles were knocking around, and I'd read them. I was aware of Flesh. Um, that really caught my interest because it's, you know, dinosaurs and cowboys, what's not to love there. But I think in the in, certainly in the 70s, I was more of a, you know, Asterix, Asterix the Gore, looking, look and learn, um, you know, the funnies, Wizard and Chips, all those ones. I've got a... Um, I've still got, well, no, I rebought it, actually, a Thunder Annual from 1974, which had, I think, Adam Eterno fighting this, um, oh, gosh, it's like a big red spider on it. And, and the more I think back, I think I think I benefited from the good old um, the good old jumble sale as a, as a way of getting comics. I think my dad or someone at home must have just gone out and bought lots of comics because I don't remember too much about going into newsagents and buying them when I was a lad, but I just think there were piles of them at home. You know, my dad went to. My dad was operating in the church, so there's lots of church jumble sales. So I think we just got boxes of comics and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, I, I read. I wasn't really a big superhero fan. I'd get the Mighty World of Marvel, the the Marvel UK reprint, and those little funny little digest size ones that you'd get that were maybe a I don't know a five something like that, and you'd have all the Kirby. I didn't realise at the time, but they're all the sort of famous Kirby reprints. And then, yeah, 2000 AD. I think one, I did do a bit of research. I think 152 was my first proper prog that I bought from the newsagent. And that was with, um, it was one of those montage covers with, I think it's the first day of the droid story and um, possibly, oh, was it uh, Wolf, uh, Wolf uh, Fiends on the Eastern Front? And there was the, the, one of the poster things. So that really caught my eye. And I think I just started getting it from then. I think it was sort of just the, the the week before Judge Death started, so it was that. So I went through the golden run of all those, um, and if like like most people, like a, a similar story to, to lots of your listeners, tailed off into the late eighties and certainly by certainly by the the late or the early nineties, which coincided with you know college and university and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. I, I did have, I, I want to say, I've got a soft spot, and I, I keep thinking back now, again, replaying what I say in this kind of interview, but the, the weeklies, the weeklies that the sort of British comics were well known for, so even the Marvel one, so, you know, Hulk comic with Steve Dillon's early work and the Star Wars Weekly and the Doctor Who Weekly and there was Captain Britain at the time, which, again, I know I said I didn't read that many um, superhero comics, but it's that sort of anthology um, title that, you know, I've just sort of really tuned into so that's sort of fond fond memories of and we're going to talk about a 90s comic in a moment but what was it that sort of brought you back to comics in 2000 ad more recently 
well, I think, well, what happened is I, I guess I went, yeah, when I went to college and uni, I started reading more and I, and I did get into the sort of crime genre more, moved away from the sort of science fiction. Um, I started reading Elmore Leonard, you know, great um, crime author, James Elroy, Jim Thompson, um, you know, some of those classic ones, I was, you know, started what I was old enough to sort of start staying up late and watching Alex, Alex Cox used to have his movie drone series like cult films on a Sunday night and you'd sort of see all these you know strange little American crime dramas um you know the films you know Catch Point Break um with Lee Marvin which I'm wondering Marv maybe that's why it's gonna maybe that'll crop up later I'm not sure if that's a a, a seed there for, for one of our character names um yeah getting into Tom Waits getting into Nick Cave all those sort of uh, evocative smoky bar type um you know imagery and, and and that sort of genre so that kind of brought me into the crime uh era so i started reading sort of like crime comics and things um and then yeah look just getting back into 2008 i guess when i just i think i saw one of the case files in a in a comic shop and just sort of that piqued my interest again so i thought all right i'll i'll, I'll I'll get back into it i'll um and i had this grand vision that i would buy every case files up until more or less the current day, and I'd, I'd be a sort of completist collector. But as it turns out, I basically bought them up until I start, stopped reading it anyway, and then, and then stopped reading it. So there must have been a reason why. Okay. Well, you've mentioned cult films and sort of crime and noir. Tell us about the book uh, that you've chosen for the book club today, and we're going to try and prove some connections to 2008 later on with it. Yeah, look, these might have been some tenuous connections. Maybe because I just felt a little bit guilty about choosing this as the title. Um, but it's Frank Miller's Sin City from the early 90s. I guess I think the first episodes came out in 19, across 1990 in Dark Horse Presents. So it was a serialised in an anthology comic. So there's one connection. Um, it's a black and white um, serialised story in an anthology comic. It is very much self um, self-contained story, though obviously we will talk about the uh, some of the sequels that came from it. Yeah, it's, it, it, it had a kind of elevator pitch storyline similar to some of the, the, the great simplest um, 2000 AD stories in that it's just a really straight tale. You know, I name-checked various crime stories and crime novels that I liked, and I, and I liked all the labyrinthine um you know, film noir and Chinatown and all those, but I also had a great love for, um, you know, some really old, some of the older pulp stories and the neo noir movies that came along in the early nineties that just had a real straight, straight as a die, plot driven, revenge in this case, revenge, but yeah, just a real, you know, straight down the line story. Okay, so it's Sin City Volume One, the Hard Goodbye. It's now known as, I think. All by mm-hmm. Frank Miller. I think even the lettering is Frank Miller. Um, I've just noticed in my trade, it says Randy Stradley was the series editor. It's dedicated to Lynn. I believe that's Lynn Varley. Um, all black and white. I've got... In fact, we've both got the same Titan trade collection from 1993. And without wanting to tar Titan with the same brush again, but it is sort of... My, my mind is falling apart. The binding mm-hmm. is as ever a bit dodgy um widely available sin city you can get it in trade paperback quite easily you can get it digitally quite easy now you've sort of said already why you chose this book that you know it was it tied into the stuff you were interested at the time um just give us a quick synopsis of the first volume of sin city what's this one about okay I really want to do a bit of a deep dive in the story, but I've got to. Maybe I'll just pull back and just tell just just, just the overview. Then shall I? Yeah. All right. So there's a bit of a cold opening, I believe that the the, um, the phrases where we have the main character Marv, who it establishes fairly clear, clearly and early. He's a bit of a drunken bum. Um, he's a thug, um, and he is lucky enough. <laughs> to be approached one evening by this angelic figure uh, called Goldie, who doesn't give him any explanation, but just, you know, wants to be with him for that one night. He obviously doesn't think too uh, much of it. He can't believe his luck. 
they have a drunken one night in this hotel room, and then he wakes up the next morning. She is stone cold dead. He works out fairly quickly, in fact, more or less in, in the blink of an eye, that she's been murdered. And the fact that the cops show up, the sirens start more or less straight away. He also, it, so, which is a, again a great signifier of Marv's, char- Marv's character, even though he describes himself as a bit of a thug and a drunken bum and all this kind of stuff. He's, he's got a fairly razor sharp brain, and straight away he realizes if the cops are on the way, no one else would, no one else could have known about um, Goldie's death. Apart, you know, just him and the person that has murdered her, and therefore called the police as well to frame him. That kicks off a fairly frenetic, um, yeah, action sequence. Well, it's just action sequence after action sequence, really. Um, there's some amazing sequences, which hopefully we'll get a chance to dive into later, but the police come knocking at his flea pit hotel. He disposes of the police by crashing through the door, diving over the... Um, you know, diving over the banister, plummeting down the stairwell, grabbing hold of a banister, swinging through a window, smashing through the window, plummeting to an alley below with, um, you know, a handy collection of mountainous uh, bin rubbish bags. Uh, a police car then roars up the alley. He obviously does what any natural person would do. He leaps onto the bonnet and goes boot first through the windscreen of the police car, kicks the police car <laughs> out takes off, drives said police car off a pier and that's just the end of chapter two. I mean from then on it's a sort of rip-roaring tale of violent revenge and uh, a sort of murder mystery to uh, solve, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It is, it is. Um, And even the the first four episodes, because like we said it's serialised, the first four episodes, and I only realised this last night, is, is just the one night, is that first night um, when he wakes up, um, Gold is dead, the police arrive, and he just goes on a little bit of a spree. You know, he goes to a, a, a down at hill bar, puts the word out that he's, you know, inconsolable. That's where he's to be found because he, he knows he's wanted, so he guesses that they'll come looking for him. And, yeah, roughs up, treats a couple of hitmen not very nicely. Um, and, again, that is, I think that's all in the first night. And there's a lovely line where, sorry, I know I'm, I'm sort of skipping ahead to some of these, uh, some of these like lovely quotes, but he he skips ahead to the fact that the sun's coming up, and he's staring down an alleyway, and the sun's just shining on him, and he says, "Oh damn, I've got to lay low." And here I was just getting warmed up. So, in, yes, Marv is getting warmed up in Sin City, and uh, we'll come back to some of the um, details of the story in a moment. So we're going to reverse our normal order and I'm going to start us off with the artwork and say that this is all black and white artwork by Frank Miller. Mm-hmm. He doesn't, I think, introduce his sort of splashes of a single colour which turns up in later volumes of Sin City. It's all black and white. Tell us a little bit about the artwork, what you thought of it and some of the influences and style that uh, Frank Miller is using in this book. Well, again, he's gone on record as saying he's had this natural interest in crime and pulp and gangster um, films. And obviously the heyday of of many of those were, you know, black and white films. Um, Similarly, the neo-noir films that came out in the 80s and 90s and to a certain extent still being produced were all about the lighting and that striking uh, lighting. So that's, um, that's what he's really gone for. It's, you know, many of the figures, the action are defined by, you know, negative space, you know, uh, by the shadows around them. But he does mess around with the lighting. It's not all just lighting from one source. So, you you know, there's no point trying to, you couldn't recreate it with, you know, um, figures or anything like that. And I did, I was reading a bit of research that, you know, for dramatic effect, the lighting just doesn't make sense because it's coming from all different places, but it's all to highlight, you know, the necessary, you know, the necessary drama. You know, on the one hand, you could say the the plot and the story is about, um, you know, good and evil and black and white, but I've also read quotes from um, Miller talking about the reason he wanted to get into Sin City as as a... as a place and as a, as a setting for story in that, you know, morals go out the window and you don't know who's good and who's bad. So it's all sort of up and down. So even though the art is stark black and white, there's lots of, you know, 
shades of grey in there. So it's very expressionistic. It's very noir. Um, as you say, Frank Miller is doing incredible things with shapes and negative space um, to make characters and scenes sort of pop out from these black mm-hmm. and white pages. Um, I mean, I'm fascinated by what I've put in our notes. I sort of like chiaroscuro way that an artist uses blocks of black and white to outline a shape rather than drawing the outline. Um, Mm. I'm noticing, because there's several splash pages throughout the book of Marv, and I'm also noticing that Frank Miller has got a thing about characters falling from a height. Um, So Marv is often plummeting from a window. Um, Of course, he famously did, you know, the Dark Knight, Batman sort of descending from height even on that famous lightning strike cover i'm guessing he probably started that when he was on working on daredevil um but some of the splash pages of marv um leaping or falling and then also um in sin city at various points uh let's say it's going to rain quite a lot and the scenes of marv in the rain or in fact in marv almost sort of picked out by the rain are just astonishing pieces of work aren't they yeah he's he's sort of dis- it's, it's almost like those old um inv- invisible man films where they see you know he's, he stands out because someone throws water or flour on him or something like that you know the marv's figure is just picked out by the rain splashing off his raincoat um you know as he trudges through the downpour and he's usually musing about you know how it's impossible situation so it's all very apocalyptic almost as well isn't it it's um you know um the end of the world sort of thing certainly his his world is peppered dialogue is peppered with the fact that he knows more or less from the beginning one of his early monologues about him you know he knows he's doomed now it's just a case of he's going to keep on killing until he gets to the truth and he'll either do it or someone will get to him first so it's that very i love that fatalistic and again it's a real simple driven story is it this is what i'm going to do um yeah i mean i love the fact i mean talking about his art i mean again you mentioned obviously um the dark knight which is where i and and lots of other people first heard of frank miller and certainly in the uk i was never not wasn't a, um, a daredevil i wasn't aware of that and then we've talked about ronin his following book electric um electra you know uh, martha washington all those sort of stories and certainly in um Dark Knight Returns and Ronin and and Daredevil, Daredevil to a point. You do have that um, monologue, that inner monologue, the the pulpy noir monologue, quite a macho monologue where he's you know talking about how he's going to um, you know um, say try and save the day, but how he's just just trying to you know trying to make sense of, of the situation he's in. That that's very um, that's very common throughout those titles. And I'll just mention that Marv, obviously, Marv is this huge, brutish uh, thug of a guy who perhaps gets even bigger as the story progresses in his size. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he gets, you know, he goes through a lot of scrapes. He goes through windows. He falls from heights. He gets beat up or he's involved in a lot of violence. And one of the sort of signature things that Miller does is these white plasters on Marv. Mm -hmm that he's in various bathrooms dressing his wounds with white plaster, and they really sort of stand out in this noirish, entirely black-and-white world. And it's sort of like one of the memorable things about Marv as the story progresses, isn't it? Yeah, and that's, that's, that's almost uh, one of the most comical things as well, because like you say, he's grown, he grows as, I guess, Miller found his feet drawing him. His face, I don't know if you, you know, realise... He looks quite a normal sort of, I mean, not a particularly pleasant face, but in the first few episodes, he's got quite a normal face, a normal profile. And then when you get to that scene where he seeks refuge with Lucille, his parole officer, and he breaks into her apartment and he goes into her bathroom and he obviously is looking for his his pills, because that's something else worth saying. He's, you know, he's got PTSD. He's on some kind of medication, but he decides to... Um, yeah, sit in the bathroom, and she must have a huge collection of, of band-aids and elastoplast because he just sort of self heals himself. And then I think it's quite comical because you've got this black; he's all in black, and like you say, there's these little tiny rectangles. Which you know, to imagine him sitting there 
unpeeling them. Look, I hate doing band. You know, I'm a teacher. When I'm on you, I juicy trying to fix a band aid to the child's knee. It's a nightmare. So it must have taken him ages. It's also a page where I think his iconic profile comes in. Like I said, he's got a, a sort of normal-ish drawn face in the first few episodes. And then when he's seizing Lucille and he's going on again, one of his rants about there's no settling down. It's going to be blood for blood and by the gallon. It's the good old days. It's the bad old days. The all or nothing days. They're back. There's no choice left and I'm ready for war. So he's saying that and he's got this this zigzag profile of his buzz cut his forehead goes straight down his nose his nose goes in he's got his whacking great chin that's him and it's what they did obviously with uh, Mickey Rourke in the film as well they sort of put this huge prosthetic you know look like uh, arms of a sofa tied around his head so you you mentioned Mickey Rourke in the film which will we'll come back to at some point as well but yes he has this iconic profile and he becomes a recognisable silhouette as the uh, the book progresses yeah and, and like I said that's the, the, there are you know we've, so far we've talked about the the violence and the grim setting but there are sort of strains of humour through there and I think that that's one of the subtler ones the fact that this is big guy that's managed to uh, you know cover himself in some fairly tricky spots with band-aids Let's go back to Miller's writing and the story then. Um, a classic noir tale of revenge. Can I say that it's a sort of, it's a fairly brutal book, isn't it? It is. It's brutal and it, uh, you know, there's obviously um, fairly key stages where it goes into straight up horror, I think. There is fairly gruesome, um, you know, serial killer, you know, sort of... A, would it be pre-Silence of the Lambs? I don't know that when serial killing and, and that all that sort of gruesomeness is all all over the media. Yeah, it is brutal and quite horrific. There's, you know, when he's, when he, 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 he Marv is basically chewing his way back up the food chain, isn't he? He starts with a small mm. fry, the, the paid, the paid uh, thugs who are the police um, which is another interesting point we'll put out that maybe even though he's this thug, he does have this code of honour. Um, you know, the police are quickly described as, you know, paid thugs on the make. They're not, you're not supposed to have any kind of um, sympathy with the, with the law. Um, so, yes, he's, he's working his way up the food chain. Um, hit men, he particularly enjoys, you know, the gruesome sort of fairly torture, you know, um, to, to get the information he needs. Um, yeah, so it does get fairly brutal. And it's Frank Miller at his most gritty, shall we say, isn't it? I mean, you know, the story is very gritty. Uh, the interesting technique, of course, is that um, an awful lot of the book is Marv's internal monologue, which is an unusual um, but rather striking technique that Miller uses. Yeah, well, Marv, I mean, he is, you know, he is the story... You know, he's probably in every panel, more or less, wouldn't you say? Apart from the odd sort of flashback to, or, 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 or you know, a, a, another character's reaction, and he because he does represent the story. He's this hulking force. You know, I did make in my notes. He is almost a superhero. He's like the Hulk. He's like the Thing. He is fairly unstoppable. Um, he does get bigger in each. Uh, seems to get bigger in each kind of um, issue. You know, you see these scenes when he's being he gets <laughs> as well as getting shot at and falling down thing, he gets he gets run over several times. Although not necessarily run over, the cars hit him and he just sort of bounces up and bounces along the freeway. Um but the cars are all in his compared to him, the cars all seem quite tiny, don't they? Yeah, they do indeed. He's forever getting it well, he's often into a very small car or getting hit by a car. Mm. But I will say, if I just want to um pick up on that um you know the code of honor and the chivalry thing so he does yeah we do we do learn fairly early and it's stated he's a thug and he's a in his in his you know done time inside and you know he's basically at the bottom of the ladder um but he does you know he has this chivalry you know he talks about oh, i'll never hit, hit a day more you know he won't hit women he just you know he loves giving pain to hit men because they're the lowest of the low um the cops are just paid thugs so he has this sort of um, old style, um, almost not chivalry, but um, this sort of code, and that, I think that chimes in as well with almost like 
um, Miller's early work, you know, of Ronin, of that wandering samurai. You know, they, they've got they've got a code, but they've got no no place to sort of to call home. Um, I, I read a quote uh, from I think it was in an introduction to uh, the film, the book of the film, talked about how. Um, I can't remember, maybe it's one of the characters said that basically Marv was born out of time. You know, he needs to be on a battlefield, in a, on a medieval battlefield somewhere, swinging an axe. That was his, um, you know, that's where he should have been born. And it does remind me of a lot of Frazetta style, you know, the old Conan books. Um, mm, and the yes. one Frank, Frank Frazetta did the illustrations for. And there are, again, some key scenes which um, I'd love to talk about at some point when he's taking on a whole group of um, usually police and that, that they are choreographed battle scenes and quite often he's swinging an axe from the end. Okay, so it is um, full of extreme violence. It's full of Marv's um, trail of revenge as he sort of works his way up the food chain. There's a, there's a, mm-hmm. a horrific serial killer in there somewhere. And as you say, scenes that are very horror movie in a way. Um Let's talk a little bit about the connections between, shall we say, Marv and Dread that you saw. And, mm-hmm. and you know, because there is that code that they both have in a way. Um, they are almost indestructible characters who have a certain code and way of doing things. Yeah, they just drive, they drive the story. Um, you know, they are the story. Was it, who was I reading, um, you know, the, the, the Dread story? Titan, where is it? Rob Williams who, who who wrote that. He was talking about that when you know when Dred's um, captured on Titan, and they just keep on going back and beating him and beating him and beating him. Um, and 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 I think Rob Williams just said, yeah, he just wanted to see how much he could keep on doing to Dred, and Dred still sort of you know staggers back up off his knees, you know, spits out teeth or whatever. And Marv, like we said, we said is very similar. I guess because the story wouldn't be half the story if he sort of collapsed unconscious and then wakes up in a hospital. But he just, yeah, he's, he's relentless. Um, obviously, there is something that stops Marv at the very end, which hasn't, you know, hasn't happened to Dredd yet. Um, and, and I guess we can spoil that because it's a 30-odd year story now, isn't it? But maybe we'll come to that when, at the time. But it's, it's, a, it's a complete story. Um, and yeah, he's a force of nature like any good, um, you know, singular, singular comic character. He is a force of nature. There's no stopping him when he gets going. Yeah, and he becomes like Dredd. He becomes this very recognisable silhouette that a great comic character has to have. Mm -hmm. Um, He's almost, you could say, he matches Dredd for chin as well at some points. Yeah, he could add. So, yeah, there are similarities. Yeah. I mean, talking about his silhouette, I think we should say something about his outfit because he has almost got a costume. You know, he wears that classic trench coat that you associate with, um, you know, 30s, 40s, uh, film noir crime. Um, but he, he, he marries that trench coat with, <laughs> um, with a, like a pair of leather pants, leather, tra- leather, leather trousers, tucked into more or less knee-length, you know, almost like Dr. Martin boots, but they're, you know, sort of military equivalents, I think. Um, a little white vest underneath. And interestingly, a little cross that is picked out every now and again. There's a little white cross. And then, you know, like I say, he's got that recognisable profile and the buzz cut. And I'm looking at the front cover where, of course, you know, it's Marv in the rain, the face, the coat, the gun. And then just Mm -hmm. as you say, just picked out that little white cross um, Mm. just peeking out from between the lapels of the coat. Uh, An interesting Mm. detail. Which, well, yeah, because, I mean, I know there was a lot of, like, Catholic imagery in um, the Daredevil stories, and there were themes in there. You know, Marv is always talking about sending people to hell. You know, I'm not sure about God being mentioned, God is bound to be mentioned, but mainly sort of God forsaking people, I guess. Um, so, yeah, there, there is that, you know, and he has, he has got that code. Obviously... Also, the church come into the, the story. It's not named church, but you know, this cardinal, the, the 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 big villain in the in the end turns to turns out to be this cardinal Rourke of the of the of the main family that rules in the city. Um, so yeah, the church is you know actually the uh, 
well, not the church themselves, but Rourke in the story is, you know, representing the church as the big bad. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, you know, as you say, Miller's relationship to uh, Catholicism, particularly from those Daredevil stories, but, hey, you know, picked out in here where Marv is working his way up to uh, the... Uh, the Catholic bad guy. Um, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Frank Miller and say that he is um, at times a controversial figure. Um, yeah. I know neither of us have read Holy Terror, so we're not really going to get into that one. But of course, one of the criticisms of Miller would be some of his depictions of women in his comics. And here in Sin City, that that can be, looking back at it from 30 years, it can be slightly problematic. Yeah, it can, and it, that did jump into focus when I was rereading that. that you know, when I first approached you about uh, about doing this book, um, didn't really pick up on it to be honest when I first read it. Um, but yeah, the yeah, obviously it is male dominated. It's it's set in. I mean, you, his defenders may argue that it's a. You know, it's a film noir. It's it's macho um, set in a night, even that's set in the modern day at the time. But you know, the nineteen thirties, forties feel. So it had that certain machismo feel, and um, you know, it's all about men doing uh, manly, uh, manly things. Um, but certainly, that you know, the women in this first story of Sin City, they are by and large victims. You know, the serial killer that we've mentioned, um, it's only revealed quite late on, but, you know, that he has targeted uh, sex workers and there's a there's a row, you know, there's a row of, to be honest, you know, to put it frankly, sex workers' heads mounted on the wall, his victims that is, um, you know, killed and consumed because it wasn't just killing them, he ate them as well. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, women are victims. Um, apart from... The Girls of Old Town, which is also problematic because it's kind of saying, well, uh, these 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 um, these sex workers, um, yes, they they are controlling their own business, um, but yeah, they're certainly kind of I don't know, almost what a twelve-year-old boy might uh, design, if you know what I mean. Their characters and their their costumes. I'm not sure how realistic that is to the actual industry. And yes, I know it's a work of fiction. I know it's set in a highly stylized way, but it's still that sort of, you know, slightly uh, iffy when you think about it. Does, I mean, I, I, have, um, I haven't reread the later books in the series. Um, <clears throat> I think, if I recall correctly, that his depictions of women do slightly improve in later volumes. He gets some what you might call stronger female characters who not necessarily uh, sex workers or at least aren't characterized mm. just as that. Mm. Um, I'm, I mean, they, ask that they do the the, 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 girl, the girls of Old Town do f- become more central characters. Um, there's Ava in the second story, a dame to kill for, but she kind of turns out to be the traditional vamp, you know, the femme fatale. So she's not particularly uh, sympathetically um, portrayed. My knowledge of the later books is. A bit more scant. I did have them and I read them, but I think it's telling that I really only I've only really gone back and reread the original story, Sin City. And in fact, I've actually got rid of the um, the other books over time just because I um, you know I wasn't rereading them. I've moved houses several times, and I just realised I needed to downscale some of these boxes that were carting around collections of books. You know, they were they, they were they were they were good. I enjoyed reading at the time, but they didn't stick with me like the you know, the uh, the lightning in a bottle that is the first story. And it's interesting, I put this in our notes, that it's interesting that earlier on he'd created Electra, he'd created the Carrie Kelly Robin in Dark Knight Returns. You mentioned earlier that um, his book Ronin, is it, was it Cassie is the character in that one? Cassie, yeah. I believe, yeah, memory serves. Yeah. Um, much stronger sort of female characters than perhaps uh, the victims and sex workers who make up just about the entirety of the women in the first volume of Sin City. Mm. And again, you could say it's okay, it's a genre piece, but you think if, if I don't know, if, if maybe with a slightly more enlightened approach these days, you know, you could still create a genre piece, but, but, but being more inclusive and being a bit more um, representational, put it that way. 
Okay. I mean, as I say, he is at times controversial. I know he has, his views have changed on certain subjects uh, in more recent times. Mm-hmm. Um, you're probably aware that he very controversially was invited to the Thought Bubble convention here in England a couple of years ago, and then he was uninvited, which is a shame because... I don't think we're going to get him across this side of the pond again. He's not travelling anymore. Um, and I, mean, I thought about that one long and hard, and I think uh, I would have preferred if he'd come, if Thought Bubble had stuck to it. But uh, there you yeah. go, that was very controversial. He's made sort of amends, hasn't he? I mean, again, we haven't read, neither of us have read Holy Terror. Okay. Um, Carry on. Can I just talk a little bit about the art, and I guess making a connection to some of the 2000 AD art um, that I certainly enjoyed. I mean, my, my, my fa- three favourite artists, if I was going to put three, even though it's obviously there's heaps, um, uh, Mike McMahon, Frank Miller, and um, Mike Mignola of Hellboy. And they all do something really similar, I think, which is they've really pushed their own styles, you know, to find new and abstract ways of presenting and telling a story. Obviously, my, um, Mick McMahon, we, we you know we know about. They've been talked um, a lot about on the on the podcast and, and what he's done. Um, Mike Mignola with Hellboy and, and Frank Miller, certainly in his prime, and I think that's kind of represented in the Sin City era. You know, he went on from Sin City to do uh, I think three hundred followed Sin City, didn't it? Yeah. So he was sort of pushing that style. Which again, I see as a, as a as a bit of a similarity with some of the 2000 AD and the British artists. Yeah, um, I'm not that. That's I'm not sort of dismissing American comic art, but I'm just not. I'm just not as familiar with you know. The, I know the greats. I know Kirby, and I know you know some of the other big names, but I couldn't. I'm, I'm not able to uh, to offer uh, you know any more opinion on those. But yeah, the artwork. I just think he's someone that, that has you know pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. You know, even to the detriment of, of some popularity. I know. I remember when the sequel to Dark Knight Returns came out, and obviously everyone was hoping and expecting for a, a second version of that. And he's kind of stepped away, or did a sidestep, and turned out turned out this very um, overly cartoony sort of work. He went that way with you know even bigger boots. You know, again, Mick McMahon. Hello, you know the big boots and big hands and big jaws, and and, and, and you know Batman was just presented even more. Yeah, even more sort of a cartoon caricature almost. So he's not afraid to he's not afraid to upset people with his you know style. And if we talk about two thousand AD style for a minute, um, you I shared with you that something that Conrad from Space Miller two thousand brought up, which was the Judge Dread Mega Special from nineteen ninety four, features a story by Robbie Morrison and Adrian Salmon called Sinned In City which is uh, a clear um, Sin City parody of Marv, isn't it? Yeah, no, I've, got to, I've got to admit, I couldn't get it into my Dropbox. I tried several times, but it wouldn't do. So I've not actually seen the story you're referring to. And I did, I did try. I think I have seen it before. It has cropped up. I did try and Google it, um, but nothing came up about an actual story. But um, I know he has certainly influenced... Um, you know, various artists, uh, not, not I don't know if directly or not, but, um, you know, that use of big blocky shadows, again, which is very popular with, um, you know, Mike Mignola, you know, is you can see it in, in some of the 2000 AD artists' work. Similarly, Henry Flint. Yes. I, I read, I reread um, Ronin. When I see Ronin, I can't help thinking some of Henry Flint's um, more recent work is very reminiscent of not the big chunky blacks but the you know the scratchy line work of Ronin and that sort of era I think I can see in Henry Flint I don't know if I'm speaking out of turn there but that's what I see oh that's interesting because I often think of Henry Flint when I read Ronin again uh, and vice versa so yeah I do see that connection as well I think Henry Flint very influenced by Frank Miller on Ronin um, Mm. and you know another wonderful 2000 AD artist yep before I ask you to pick some incredibly hard grail pages, Luke, tell us about some more of the episodes that particularly stood out to you in this first story of Sin City. Um, I could more or less just talk through the book page by page, really. Um, like I said, the first four episodes, it's just on the one night. You know, the episode four ends with um, Marv standing at the, the, the face of a, an alleyway, and you can't see it's an alleyway. All you know, all you know is the fact that you've got the, the brickwork, the outline of the brickwork, 
and the sun streaming, you know, highlighting half of Marv. And he's saying, oh, hell, the sun's up. Now I've got to go and find me a place to sack uh, What's that? To sack out. And here I was just getting warmed up. So you've got that sort of dialogue. Um, you know, there's a few calm paces in the book. You know, it settles down. He has to, he has to bed down and then it goes off again. You know, that, that scene is followed by him driving a car along. He's, he's managing to drive a car, lean out the car door and drag some poor, um, I say poor, they're probably like some hide killer, but dragging them along on the ground, you know, face first. He then goes into a confessional, admits, because he's been given the tip off about the church being involved and he ends up shooting the priest. That's when we get this possible, you know, clue that oh maybe marv was um because his mental state has been alluded to his fragile mental state has been alluded to throughout the story and then he thinks he sees goldie again as someone tries to to mow him down again one of those scenes we talked about with him being bounced around but turns out it's wendy goldie's twin sister which we only find out about later there's a key scene with the farm and i love the farm as a, as a location because up to now we've had sin city as the you know the brooding 19 19- 40s you know like you say the black and white um cityscape and then we visit the farm and the farm is this place where marv knows straight away with his like i said he's got that sort of animal instinct again a link to, to sort of conan almost a conan stories the robert e howard conan stories where marv says when he gets to the farm he says this is a bad place this farm people have died here the wrong way which is a great little line, and you've got the, the turning the turning windmill, the clack 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 of the um, the windmill. The dog appears, and that's when we first meet Kevin, who is, you know, quite an unusual serial killer. I think you'll agree, and he makes mm. a really good he makes a really good contrast to Marv, who's been built up, as we've said, as this elemental driving force, this seven foot guy in leather pants and a trench coat and a buzz cut, and he gets taken down by Kevin. Kevin is this fairly slight-looking character, played by Elijah Wood in the movie. I don't know if you remember, but, you know, Elijah Wood and Frodo Frodo Baggins fame, so that tells you. You know, his little round glasses and his little cartoon jumper with the... It's almost like um, Charlie Brown. (laughs) Charlie Brown's zigzag pattern on his jumper and a pair of Converse. And he takes down Marv, and that's when Marv wakes up. And he is imprisoned, and that's when we find out, basically, that's when there's a major reveal about um, Kevin being the serial killer. Kevin, um, yeah, um, targeting these sex workers. That's where we find out a little episodes later that that's where Goldie stumbled upon Kevin, and that's what marked Goldie down for death, which kicked the whole uh, story off. The farm's a great location. Yeah, fantastic stuff. You asked me, uh, going back to your original question, about the sequences, I think. There's several sequences throughout the story where Marv, and I've alluded to them, where Marv sort of takes on, you know, a whole crowd. And Frank Miller, and something I think, which, which again, which only really occurred to me when I went back and read it, now that I've gone back and I've read more Frank Miller since reading Sin City, he has these scenes where, whether it's Batman in year one, you know, there's a famous scene in Batman year one where he first goes out in costume and he takes out those, there's some muggers on um, the fire escape, sort yeah. of, you know, got fire escape. And it's that sort of action sequence where there's, you don't see any, what's the word for them? The swing lines. When someone swings a punch and you see a, you know, yeah, whoosh, movement lines. lines to the air, the, 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 the figures are just frozen, aren't they? And it's like the one at the beginning where Marv is taking down, uh, is escaping from the hotel room. And then there's this scene where the police arrive at the farm to pick Marv up because he's been in prison. But obviously Marv being Marv, he just threw himself at a big steel door until it gave way. Um, the police then, you know, shot Lucille. Again, um, a bit of, um, you know, a... a, a you know, a female character meeting a bit of an unpleasant end. So Marv takes on all these these policemen and literally sort of takes them one by one, but it's all done in this frozen, you know, black and white, almost like a freeze frame. If you can imagine a camera going off at each time mm. and the police are sort of being whittled down, you know, he starts off attacking, I can't, let's have a look, there's sort of one, two, 
three, four, five, six of them, I think. And then in each frame, I don't know if you're able to follow this as well, each frame, yeah. they just get dispatched. And at the same time, there's this, their officer, their commanding officer, who's a rather strange guy with a face tattoo, is desperately trying to shoot his gun at him. And eventually it's just the two of them left. And this poor fellow is just le- left there and his gun's just going click, click, click. And Marv says one of his repeating lines, one of his little catchphrases, that there is one damn fine coat you're wearing. And you just know <laughs> that that guy is not really in for a happy time for the rest of the evening. So it's those sequences. That's what, And there's another one later on where Marv storms the um, Rourke hideout. And again, it's very reminiscent of, of, of what he's done in... Um, you know, uh, uh, Daredevil, uh, Batman Year One, like I said, when Batman's first going out. Um, it reminded me a lot of um, the Dark Knight against the, the mutant leader in the um, yes. Dark Knight Returns. Yeah. You know, and, you take, and, and again, it's that, that's that little monologue, isn't it, throughout the fight. Each, each sort of swing of the fist and yeah. crunch of the jaw, there's a little monologue that goes with it. And so, yeah, it's very reminiscent of that, including the, the, the penultimate fight where, and I'm skipping ahead, where Marv with, with Wendy, who's, you know, Goldie's twin sister, he's, he's, he's made, he's made, made, um, he's pieced, pieced the pieces together of the, the murder mystery. He, the girls of Old Town have um, allied with him. He's gone back to the farm and he plans it with his, his petrol, his petrol canister, his razor wire, his gloves, his, his, you know, he's put this little kit together and he takes Kevin down. But again, it's that story is told in those, like, like I said, little monologues of the fight. But this time he's not, just like Batman in the second fight with um, the mutant leader. He, this time he knows what he's doing. He's not going to be surprised. And even though he yeah. takes a lot of damage, which as we've said, Frank Miller characters like to take a lot of damage, he ends up just sort of clicking the... Um, what does he do? He clicks the um, handcuff onto Kevin. Handcuffs. On the yeah. As soon as that's done, like Kevin's doomed, really, because he can't get away, no matter how agile he is. And you mentioned Elijah Wood plays Kevin in the movie because, unusually for the books we cover on the book club, this has had two movies uh, of Sin City, mm-hmm. um, directed in part by Frank Miller himself with Robert Rodriguez. And I think Quentin Tarantino directed one of the segments of the first film. I haven't seen the second film, but as you as you say, Mickey O'Rourke plays Marv in the first film, and some of the, or in fact, quite a lot of the filming looks almost exactly like the comic book pages that we see here. Yeah, it's like I think they, they did the same with um, Three Hundred, didn't they? The uh, was it uh, Zack yes. Snyder was the was the director of Three Hundred, and they yeah. basically said. Look, there's no point. There's no point creating a storyboard because we've got the graphic novel, so we'll just use the graphic novel as a storyboard, and, and it's, it's often sort of shot for shot, isn't it? Um, I haven't seen the first film. I think the first, the first film is great, but it, the first film actually basically draws on I think three of the other stories, doesn't it? It draws. It on, does, yeah. Um, Possibly, because I know it introduces Dwight, who is played by Owen. Clive Owen. Clive Owen, that's the one. Um, Clive Owen plays Dwight, and there's various other um, sort of key characters, and there's um, oh, um, good old Bruce Willis plays Hartigan, so he's a character from one yeah. of the other later stories. Because I guess if they did try to just to film Sin City, is it The Hard Goodbye? Is that what it was re yeah. renamed as? If they just tried to film that, it would be a very slight film. It'd probably last 20 minutes. Yeah. So they've obviously, you know, they, they use all these other... Um, you know the other properties to sort of tie it um, to sort of not pad it out but to create a film with with this Marv story basically running through it as the main uh, one I think um, yeah I mean do we want to talk about Marv and his uh, unfortunate end is that was that where we're heading well we can mention that he does have an ending yes as you say this is self-contained uh, Marv ends up you can tell us where he ends up well, he ends up, poor fella, he ends up in the electric chair. So it's almost like a classic film noir where things do not work out well. Yes, yeah. Goldie is avenged. The bad, you know, the guys have been taken down. But just as, which is, I think it's true to the story. It'd have been, it wouldn't have been, um, you know, true to the concept if Marv had managed to escape somehow. Because he did say at the very beginning, he realises, that's it, I'm, you know, I'm cooked. 
Um, yeah, I've been set. I've been set up by the fall, as the fall guy. Um, there's this huge conspiracy with you know one of the biggest families, the church no less. And I'm not going to get away from this. And but he, as he says numerous times, I'm just going to keep on killing until I get there or someone kills me first. So even though he does take down um, Kevin, and Kevin meets a fairly uh, unpleasant end at the end of a hacksaw. You know, there's various yeah. pieces of him <laughs> uh, feature later on. And also Cardinal Rourke also. It's not in such graphic detail, but, you know, Marv does explain to, I'm not sure who he explains to, um, it may be Goldie. Maybe he's just having an internal monologue to Goldie about how, you know, how much Cardinal Rourke suffered. But, yeah, certainly he, he didn't die a very pleasant death. So he's quite happy in a way. He's, he, you know, he knew what was coming. He's, he's annoyed that the police didn't shoot him at the end when they burst in after he's murdered Rourke. Um, unfortunately, they don't kill him. So there's a show trial. You know, he gets blamed for all the deaths of the prostitutes, which you think, you know, is a fairly bitter end, considering he, you know, he said, you know, he, he's, he's, he's got this code of honour, this chivalry, uh, this chivalrous uh, streak. Um and yet, you know, the crowd are baying for his blood because he, you know, the, the system beats him. Sin City wins in the end. He gets um, convicted, sent to the electric chair. You know, he's sitting there. He's, he's having a go at the um, the guy that operates the big lever. Could you get a move on? I haven't got all night, he says. And then his last words were, because it takes him two shocks to try and kill him. First one just basically illuminates him and various bits of his face are smouldering away. And he still has the strength to, 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 to sort of look up and say, you know, gives a bit of a laugh and says, how is that the best you can do, you pansies? Again, not particularly politically correct, I might just add. Um, and then they throw the switch again and finally it just ends on that one last page with his smouldering, you know, corpse in the chair and there's the priest there and a couple of the police and the doctor saying, yep, he's gone, the end. And that's it. So very definitely an end for Marv. Yes, a gruesome and dramatic end for Marv uh, to a gruesome and dramatic book. Um, let's play Grail Pages. I'm going to turn the cameras back back on for this bit, Luke. Right. Could I just, sorry, before we do, sorry, I've just got one more thing I wanted to say about just the, just the, um, of course. the story as a whole and the fact that Marv did meet this end and he made it this sort of complete story. I just wonder if... Like Frank Miller's intention after that, because Marv then just reappears as a recurring character in flashback, and it's almost as if he kind of realizes, as, as, as creators do quite often, that they've killed off a character, and he's actually, you know, he's so larger than life. There's such a lot to him. Um, you know, you learn a little bit more about his backstory, but that's not necessary. You don't need to. I like, I like the fact that certain things are just alluded to. There's a little bit of evidence, I think, that he might have served in the military before. He's certainly got some sort of PTSD. He's on he's on medication. So he's such a great character. And the characters that followed, like I said, Dwight in the second story, who I think was just a sort of photographer, private eye. And then there's some of the characters from, um, you know, some of the, the characters from Old Town. And Hartigan, like I said, the, the, the character that Bruce Willis played, you know, they, they were fairly stock standard types. Whereas Marv, as you know, what which would have been just a normal heavy, a henchman in these stories, he's actually made the main character, so he's so interesting. Um, and the fact that he's kept on brought back in flashbacks, and you see him in, in several stories, and he, and he features in, in some little, um, you know, some individual one shots that, that, that feature Marv, obviously before he died, um, that makes me think, yeah, he he was the one, he was the the, the one that made the, the 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 first story so great, and that's why I think. You know the, the the other stories, while have been interesting, and they flashed it, fleshed out the world of Sin City and the environments. They didn't quite have what this first one had, mainly because Marv, such a memorable character, as you say. Perhaps Miller realizing he shouldn't have got rid of him, but there you go. Mm. Yeah. Okay, we've mentioned that Marv features on pretty much every page in some memorable uh, images, particularly the splash pages. Um, obviously, Frank Miller pages extremely expensive and sought after. 
Uh, I looked on Comic Art Fan's website to look at some of the pages, and I noted that Marv as a character is also an extremely popular commission and sketch by other artists because mm. he is such a recognisable sort of silhouette, and you can do all those things with the white plasters and everything. Um, let's put the cameras on and say, have a grail page or two from this first volume. What are you going to pick, Luke? Well, again, it's a bit of a cliche because I, I know it's what well, a lot of your uh, guests say, but there's so many to choose from, and I find, found it hard to um, to zero it in. One, because um, quite often <laughs> some of them are just so bloody violent that it's kind of, I wouldn't necessarily want that uh, hanging on the wall. I'm pretty sure my long-suffering um, but beautiful wife would not appreciate that. Um, so I've actually gone for, and there is, like I say, we'd love to see some of those um, and have some of those images of the, of the, you know, choreographed fight scenes. But I've gone for a nice calm page, and it's near the end. Uh, it's where Marv has been. He's, he's tracked. He's followed the clues to Old Town. He's been confronted by. Uh, who he thinks is Goldie, that's when he thinks he's losing his mind, but it turns out it's Wendy, Goldie's twin sister. He is tied to a chair and beaten up because they think he has something to do with Wendy's death. Another one of uh, Frank Miller's tropes, like torture. I think um, Dark Knight was bashed around quite a lot by Lex Luthor in the in the Dark Knight sequel. But I've gone for a page after he's managed to convince them he's he's not, and he basically just gets up. You know, he could have got up, he could have, he could have stood up and got out of it all the time but he just sat there and took the punishment while they you know got off their chest kind of thing and he's in the bathroom and his back's to us it's um, oh, um near yes yeah, so it's near the start of chapter nine the first page there's a picture that's the one yep that's the one so he's looking in the mirror and i just like <laughs> i like the decor i like a nice bathroom so he's got this You've had all this chaos and this horror leading up to now. You know, we've had serial killers, we've had hitmen, we've had cannibalism. Um, and then it's Brian Martin, he's just, he's looking in the mirror. You can't see his face, it's just his huge back. And there's a little, te- there's only one text, text box. And he says, I throw up a couple of times and then I'm ready. So you've got that image of him looking in the bath, looking in the mirror in the bathroom, and then just as a little foretaste, a foreshadowing of what's to come, you've got the nice decor of the period bathroom, and then underneath there's just three small squares with Marv's big hand, and it's a very Jack Kirby-like hand, isn't it? You can imagine mm. the thing having a hand like that, huge, big sausage fingers. He's reaching down, and he's picking up his coat. The next frame, he's picking up Gladys, who's his, uh, his, his cult I think he's a cult. I don't know. I don't know much about guns, but his pistol. And then his final one, he's just reaching for the small machete, which tells you all you need to know about what's coming, really. The similar, the, the, the page after that is, is similarly, mm. you know, quite nice because it's, it's, you've got these beautiful drapes, big, tall windows. Marv's there putting his coat on saying, I need a pair of handcuffs. You know, and it's that, it's that sort of, it, that sort of juxta, juxtaposition of, um, you know, elegance, but, you know, there's something brutal around the corner. I could have chosen so many pictures. I love the ones of cars. Miller, Miller, Frank, yeah. I mean, I, <clears throat> you know, I can't draw horses and I can't draw cars. So those are the two things that probably stopped me trying to be a comics artist. Um, in my, well, you know, that and a whole heap of lack of talent, but basically. But, um, but I love the way most of his cars in Sin City are just little black boxes with the the windscreen um, or the headlights, and they're all elevated off the ground because they're just shot over a hill. So any of the pictures with cars, but yeah, I'm going to go for that bathroom pic. Excellent stuff, and I will post an image of that when this episode comes out on all the socials so people can see what we're talking about. I'm going to go back to earlier in the book. I'm going to show you on the camera an image of Marv jumping from a roof. Yep. And this thing I've noticed that Frank Miller does, which is he likes to depict the fallen figure. It's a very Dark Knight Returns page, in a way, um, of Marv just dropping. I was tempted by one of the rain scenes of Marv in the rain and the beautiful work that Miller does, the way he delineates the character with rain. But I'm going to pick that image of him falling from a roof or jumping from a roof um, Mm -hmm. 
just a single splash page, no dialogue. He's got the plasters on. Um, and again, it's just wonderful work by Miller. You can almost, as you say, you can almost look at the hands and say that's Kirby-esque as well of Miller, um, mm. as well as sort of his nods back to the spirit and Will Eisner and all that stuff. So again, I will post these pictures, which we couldn't possibly afford, but we'd love to, to own. Um, and I'll put the pictures on all the socials when the episode comes out. Yep, lovely. Thank you. Great stuff, Luke. I will say that Sin City Volume 1 is easily available in paperback. It's about £19 over here in the UK. It's also digitally available on the Kindle. There are seven volumes of Sin City in all, uh, I don't remember much beyond the first four volumes myself, but it, you know there are certainly it goes on this story and progresses, and he does bring back Marv in flashback stories. Yeah, I think there's four main stories. Sin City's followed by a dame to kill for. Um, then it's a big fat kill, which interestingly foreshadows 300 because I think there's a, there's a scene in that where the the the, the, um, the heroes you know talk about when you're heavily outnumbered, it's all about picking a best place to make a stand kind of thing. And I think he talks about the, the Spartans of, you know, Thermopylae. So um, there's that story. And then the, the, that yellow bastard is the, the final main story. And then the, I think the other ones are sort of one shots and sort of slimmer volumes. Yeah. And as you say, I think the Hartigan, the yellow bastard story that became the Bruce Willis line in the first, or the mm. story in the first film. Okay, Luke. Great stuff. Uh, interesting Sin City, fantastic artwork and some interesting connections possibly between uh, Marv and Dread and some of the art styles and some of the famous 2008 artists. Um, let's do guest projects quickly and just tell us about your own spray art projects. Okay. Um, oh, I kind of feeling that's uh, making them more grandiose than they are. Um, yeah, look, I got back into making art. I, you know, I went to art college. I did various other things, um, sort of swam around for a bit, trying to find out, you know, uh, what I could do. Um, you know, I went into teaching. I, do, I developed a love of that. Teaching enabled me to travel to Australia with my family, where we, you know, we settled quite happily. And in in doing so, I, I, I started to sort of, um, you know, reach back and get get back into art, and um, you know, talk to various people. And I think stencil art was sort of suggested as a, you know, if you're time poor, because, you know, if you've got a, a job and a family, you know, there's not much time to uh, to, to find for yourself. So, you know, stenciling um, is something um, that really lends itself to that. So I, I got into stenciling. I used a lot of the um, – I went back to 2000 AD for my sort of inspiration. So I did sort of A4 um, stencil pieces, which, you know, I've got to hold my hand up. It's basic tracing and copying. I mean, I'm not being, I'm not holding any allusions to my originality there. Um, but I was able to, uh, sort of create these quite effective, you know, black and white spray painted stencils of, you know, classic McMahon, uh, Dreadface, um, the Bolland, um, Judge Child, uh, cover, you know, and he's just got Owen Chrysler in the, in the, in the eye, um, uh, I, I visor slots. I use that image. Um, a classic Dave Gibbons Rogue Trooper. Um, Alan Davis is Captain Britain. I'm a big Alan Davis uh, Captain Britain fan. I know you are too. I'd love to talk about that for another um, a long time. I know it's been already done as a story. Um, so one of those. I use those as a as an image. Um, so once I sort of worked my way through them, just to sort of get into stenciling because it's very much black and white. Obviously, with a black and white image, you can you can um, you know, get it onto acetate. You can, I get a scalpel, I, you know, cut it all out and, and things and then sort of play around with it. And then just started moving onto other images and other faces. Um, a little bit of landscape. I moved into some landscapes recently with sort of container ships and containers round about where I live in Melbourne. There's lots of um, the docks and, um, you know, the shipping containers, so sort of urban industrial uh, setting. Uh, but yeah, so just, you know, and I found, people that were interested in in it and uh i was lucky enough to meet certain people that helped me um good friend chuck mckenzie who uh, ran a little um bookshop and comic shop he started to show the work and put it in i began to um sell it which was um you know quite fortunate and then sort of worked my up to little just little local galleries and uh, commercial galleries um 
yeah, and there's a shop uh, around uh, near me at the moment that uh, stocks my pictures. Nothing that would ever enable me to retire early um, or give up teaching. You know, it'd be nice if I could maybe drop a day as I get older. You know, drop a day in the classroom and spend an extra day painting. But um, yeah, so it's it's become a um, my third place, as they say. It's not work. It's not the family home. It's it's a it's a it's a place for myself. Um, and I'm lucky enough to sell some pieces, and I and I. And I you know, full of um, surprise still when people buy them and, and uh, it pleases me that they're hanging on people's walls here and there. I've got a few on Etsy, but uh, I don't. <laughs> to have a successful online presence, as someone told me a, a, a while ago, and, I, and I've realised this now, you really need to, that's like a job in itself, uh, promoting your artwork, publicising it, you know, getting your name here, there and everywhere and just, you know, it's a, it's a long time. So I have a small, a small Etsy shop with a handful of things on that I keep on meaning to yeah, expand, but it never quite gets there. But it's, you know, it serves its purpose. And is there a, a link to your Etsy store or a, a particular search phrase people should use if they want to have a look at your art? Okay. If you just go on Etsy um, and type in Luke, not Dave, all one word, Luke, not Dave, L-U-K-E-N-O-T-D-A-V-E. That's a, uh, a convoluted but not very interesting story behind that one. But uh, yeah, so uh, Luke Not Dave on Etsy. Also, uh, my Instagram page is the same, Luke Not Dave. So there's uh, a mixture of my uh, spray paint work and also some mug shots of me and the family out and about on there. So people are welcome to have a look there if they're interested. I do, ship overseas. I do ship overseas, so that's that's not a that's not a deal breaker. <laughs> Excellent. So just well. If people look in the show notes for this episode or on the website at megacitybookclub.com, they will find links to Luke's Etsy store and you can have a look at the artwork we've been talking about. Lovely. And thank you, Luke, for giving up your time uh, and doing a connection from Oz to talk about Frank Miller and Sin City. No worries. Thank you so much for... Um, I know it's a little bit of a... Um indulgence i guess because i know it's not a 2000 day story and i did try and play up the connections but um i just thought it was interesting because that's those are the kind of stories i left 2000 ad for if you like when i went away to college and i you know sort of moved on and, and saw what else was out there so sin city um ted mckeever's work um mike mignola hellboy so it's, it's those sort of things i sort of went to so i wonder if people have got similar kind of stories with where they went excellent and of course we have talked about some future books that we might stick with the sort of crime noir theme and follow Sean Phillips to some other yeah. uh, books that he's yeah. done after 2000 AD. I do like his reckless, uh, his reckless books. They're very evocative. Um, I've enjoyed reading those with uh, Ed, Ed Brubaker, isn't it? Is the writer. Yeah. Brubaker and Phillips. We may return or we may go to the world of Brubaker mm-hmm. and Phillips and hard boiled noir stuff there. Great stuff. Thank you again, Luke. All right. Thank you so much, Eamon. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to everyone for listening to Mega City Book Club. As ever, all those links, including Luke's links, are at megacitybookclub.com. Follow the pod on Facebook, Instagram, Mastodon, and the 2000AD forums. A quick reminder that although the account is still on Twitter, I have come off Twitter for the time being, so there's no updates being posted there at the moment. However, you can email me at mcbcpodcast at gmail.com, as Luke did, if you've got a book uh, that you want to come on the podcast and talk about, or if you've got any feedback for us, please do. And until next time, when we're passing judgment on another great book, it's a goodbye from me and from Oz. And a goodbye from me. Thank you very much, Eamon.